Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Greenwashing is a term most of us have come to learn because it's become part of the modern vernacular. Also known as green sheen, it's the false or overstated claims to deceive stakeholders to believe a company's products or services are environmentally safer or sustainable when maybe they're not. Companies are responding to a world in climate change stress and consumers really want to do their bit to save the planet or at the very least not make it less inhabitable. Floods, fires and famines raging across the planet are nobody's idea of a sustainable future. My guest today is John Patton, who has spent two decades in the business of saving our earth. After leaving his role in the United Nations, John travelled the world studying the impacts of sustainability firsthand in factories, on fields and at Fortune 500 companies. His mission is to move sustainability from theory to practical strategies that help people and businesses confidently make that real impact. And over his career, he's had the privilege of working not only with the United Nations, but household names such as McKinsey, AC Nielsen, and as a consultant with B. the world's largest sustainability-focused business network. He is the founder of Fulcrum Strategic Advisors, Program Director for the Conference Board's Asia Sustainability Leaders Council, and serves on the Board of Advisors to the US Green Chamber of Commerce. He's obviously pretty clever. He's also the author of Sustainability for the Rest of Us, Your No Bullshit Five-Point Plan for Saving the Planet, which I actually quoted this week in my university studies. So there you go, John. And his upcoming book, The Great Greenwashing, will be out in June 2023. So welcome to the politics of everything. Awesome. Thank you so much for the intro. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me, I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound, And everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy. And with everything from local recording to automate post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Okay, so do you recall what young John wanted to be? Did you want to save the planet at age four or did you think you might be an astronaut or something else? Um, I actually, it's funny enough, I actually went through sort of different phases. I mean, I think every little boy wants to be a paleontologist at some phase. I think I wanted <laughs> to study Egypt, but uh, by the time I got to university, I actually went to university for music. So I'm a, I'm a clarinetist, I'm a trained trained musician and I was in... 
sort of my third year, I think, of my of my undergrad. And I had my final political science course, sort of the final general education course that I had to take. And I put it off to the very end. And I thought, I really don't want to do this. Not my thing. And I sat in the class and it changed the trajectory of my life. And from then on out, I, I studied politics. So uh, always working in the the public side of things, which I guess at the end of the day kind of is that altruistic save the world stuff. But I didn't really call it that at the time. Absolutely. And so when you come to sort of defining something like greenwashing, I've just kind of done a pretty generic intro. What do you think it means for an organization in your view these days? We've kind of moved uh, really at lightning pace in some ways into this world of everyone expects companies to be greener, mostly, let's say mostly, because not everyone will be. But in your view, what is it really at the end of the day that matters when it comes to companies and organizations and I guess their green credentials? It's interesting because post-COVID, there's been a massive uptick in greenwashing. And I think a lot of that is because the companies that are sort of lagging finally realized, oh, wait, we should hop on this bandwagon because we can make lots of money. So they're they're going about doing greenwashing and maybe it's accidental, maybe it's on purpose, but there's certainly been a lot more of it happening in the corporate world. And backing up one step, greenwashing really boiled down. It's a mismatch between what your public persona is as a company versus what you're actually doing behind the scenes. And there's even different different types of greenwashing. So as I mentioned, some is is quite innocent, not giving companies a pass if they do it, but it, it might be accidental because they don't quite have the the training wheels off of their sustainability machine just yet. But then there's the companies and Luckily, this this is not the majority as far as I understand, but those that have greenwashing built into their marketing mix. So they're purposely going out there. They're purposely lying. You see this a lot in the, the highly polluting industry. So this won't be a shock to anybody listening. But if you look at an industry like oil and gas or mining, anything that gets dug out of the ground, anything that chops down trees, those sort of companies and industries are the ones that are the worst at greenwashing. So they do it the most, but also they're not so slick. So that's a, a bit of a high level understanding of greenwashing. But even within that, it's so highly matrixed. So you have different types like Greenspeak, where a company will basically say they're sustainable, but they don't really expect you to call them on it or to do any research. Then there's sort of misdirection. So don't look over here. Look over here at this other stuff we're doing, this this small little piece of our universe where we're doing well, but ignore all the child labor we have in our factories. And then there's the real insidious stuff where companies will actually pay to throw people off the scent. So again, the oil industry is great at this. They will create these groups that look like nonprofit organizations, but really they're lobbying groups for the oil industry. So there's definitely different types and lots for consumers to look out for. It's a bit of a minefield. So changing tack a little bit, what does sustainability at its best and worst look like to you? And I guess we don't have to name and shame companies, but maybe just sectors and, and so forth. Because I think for a lot of us, we aren't every day immersed in what these tactics look like. And and like you say, if something says it's green, sustainable, recycled, when you go to the supermarket and you buy your product, for example, you kind of just take it at face value. That's exactly right. And I'll start with I'll start with the worst. <laughs> those are Yay. those are always the easiest. Bad news first. Yeah, bad news first. first. That's always I can easier. Tell that. <laughs> <laughs> so I I really think it does come back to to greenwashing. It's 
anything where where a company is just outright lying, you know, we don't like that as consumers. Nobody likes to be lied to. So I think that's definitely sustainability at its worst, where companies are co-opting doing good so they can shield themselves from bad PR. So that's that's the worst of the worst. But I'm I'm happy to say that that is becoming uh, rare and rare over time, which is a great thing. On the good side of things, and looking at my experience over the past twenty years. When a company can marry this idea of doing good with having a profitable business, that's amazing. I have no problem talking about money and saving the world. I think they need to go hand in hand because then we can really uh, exponentially increase the great things we're doing. So when a company looks at sustainability strategically, that's when we really see amazing things happening. And I'll give an example. Of, I give this, this quite often of Walmart. And I know in the United States and much of, much of the Western world, Walmart is sort of seen as, as Satan incarnate when it comes to companies. But for all the bad <laughs> things they're doing in-, in All the, that plastic they sell. Exactly. That's plastic crap. <laughs> <laughs> in the developing world though, and I spent about 10 years of my career in, in China, they're doing amazing things in their supply chain. So they've gone into their suppliers across China and much of Southeast Asia and have developed programs where they'll upskill female workers. They'll teach them things like family planning and communication, things that basically a, a normal person working in a factory probably would not have received in school. And the rationale behind that is, yay, it's great. It does good things by, by the people that are working there. But if you think about it from a business perspective, so I'll, I'll use an example, so, so stop me if it's if it's too crass, but in much of the developing world, abortion is seen as a form of birth control. Now, if you're 50% of your workforce is out at any one time or suffering from the effects of an abortion, there, there's going to be high absenteeism. They're, they're not going to be quite happy or focused when they come to work. But if you show them, if you educate them on, on different ways of family planning, all of a sudden you see workers coming to work more often, they're happier, they're healthier, they're more productive. So the factory then in turn earns more money. So you're doing good by your people, but you're also doing doing well by the business. And that's when we see that marriage, that's when we see amazing things happening in sustainability and a lot of the uh, the good case studies come out. They're great examples and I think most people will relate to all of that. So in some ways, do you agree that the reality is it's impossible to avoid a world where businesses and leaders are forced to maybe you know, reshape their entire business and their narrative to talk about ESG all the time. But I also think that's what people expect. So I always, in my view, there's sort of a tension in that activity to kind of, we want to look good, we want to do good, we want to have, you know, great staff that are proud to work with us, customers that sing our praises, and obviously investors, if that's the space you're in. How can these companies and organizations, I guess, look good and be good in a greener way and be ethical and competitive? Because it sounds like utopia. And I think for a lot of companies, particularly like you've mentioned, if they're traditionally digging stuff out of the ground, if they're a coal seam gas company, for example, or you know a coal mine, they're not exactly going to be able to say, yeah, it's we're 100% ESG friendly. I couldn't think of a world more boring than one if all companies started to talk about ESG all the time. <laughs> so I definitely <laughs> don't want us to go down that route. Yeah. And and I'm not in the mind frame of, of being an activist either. So I look at sustainability much more pragmatically. I actually call myself a pragmatic altruist because 
this the things that we're trying to do it's not flipping a switch one way or the other it's not black and white so there's there's heaps of nuance in terms of getting companies to be better and i think as long as they're moving the needle in the right direction that is what we want we can't expect companies that have been around for 100 plus years that are not very nimble to just change because they want them to there are lots of considerations uh, plastic recycling is a great a great example i had a call with somebody this morning that's created this uh, it's sort of like a microbe that will break down plastics when they're in landfills and it's sort of those those cool innovations that we need in the sustainability world, but we're still sort of stuck on recycling. And now recycling doesn't work uh, because about 95% of the stuff that we send off to be recycled doesn't actually get recycled for millions of different reasons. So that's yeah. not solving And when we're very guilty of that in Australia. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure you would know we, there was a whole scandal. No one mm-hmm. knew that all our recycling, we put in that magic green bin or yellow bin, ends <laughs> up going to a third world country. Yes. And, and so now those countries are pushing back. China is another example where where they've said, no, we don't want your trash anymore. And all of a sudden, places like the United States, Australia, the EU, they're going, okay, well, what are we supposed to do with it? Not our problem. Figure it out. So it's it's these sort of things that we need to understand. There, there are a lot of nuances. So I don't want companies to constantly be talking about ESG. I want them to be paying attention to the things they're doing. And I also want us to understand that in a lot of ways, there are things companies cannot do. So as an example, the oil and gas industry, the mining industry, those are industries defense. Those are industries that will never be sustainable. There is no way, unless they change their entire business model to something totally different, it's impossible for them to be a sustainable business. Tobacco, can they do better though? Is it about just moving the needle a little bit? Yeah, and I think it definitely is in the in the short to medium term. So definitely get them to be better with the things they're doing, but we can't allow them in 50, 100 years time to still be doing what they're doing. I don't think uh, certainly the market's going to allow for that. And as a bit of a hopeful note, I think Maybe over the next 10, 15 years, if I'm looking into a crystal ball, I think most companies will just be by default sustainable companies if we're talking about sort of um, consumer goods. So when a consumer goes to the shelf today, we look and we have to make a conscious decision and probably pay a bit more if we want to buy sustainably. But in 15 years time, I don't think there'll be companies that really exist anymore in the FMCG space that are not sustainable. Because if you don't play ball now, you don't have a very long shelf life. That was a terrible pun that I didn't mean to do. So I It's good on a podcast to have a pun or two. <laughs> totally unintentional. Um, so I don't think they're going to be around much longer. And, and that's a good thing. So I think once we get to that point where companies are all sustainable, they don't need to keep banging on to us about how good they are. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think we get sick of it. And we start tuning out after a while. I think that's the problem. It all starts to sound the same. And, you know, we can only absorb so much information. So how do you think most of us can become more educated to understand that greenwashing BS, as you put it, and not be swayed by things like carbon offsets and, you know, little stickers that we might see that tell us that something's, you know, energy efficient, for example, you know, that universal star system is something we've had in Australia for a long time on all our appliances, for example. Do we need something that's quite simple? Because at the end of the day, who's going to read a white paper or perhaps even a book on these topics to get more educated? How can we really cut through so it becomes something that we all understand no matter where we're coming from? 
Absolutely. It is about simplicity, especially if we're talking about communicating to consumers. You know, that's marketing 101. Know your audience, know what they want to hear, and and just focus in on that. And that translates as well to, to a lot of the work I do with companies around their operations and what they're actually focused on. Because a lot of times they'll try to do a million things. And if you try to do everything, you're going to accomplish nothing. So it's really about focusing about addressing the things that your stakeholders want. And that's where we see a lot of the the biggest progress. So I think it is about simplicity. I love the star rating system. I, I find it very useful when I'm going out and purchasing any white goods. And even, even at the grocery store, we see the star system at like Woolies and Coles, where you look at something and it has one star, which means it's really bad for you versus five stars, which means it's great to eat. That is also a really great way of, of helping consumers understand what they should and should not the, be purchasing. The only thing I'm going to say about that, and I, I've been in PR for a long time, is that some years ago, it doesn't happen now, I don't think. For example, you could actually buy a heart foundation tick. <laughs> so you'd see a heart foundation tick to say it's good for your healthy heart on products, which, you know, intrinsically, you know, like a chocolate bar is not that great for you. So I think that's the only risk. It's, it's the, you know, that it gets commercialized in a way that's not standard. Absolutely. And I talk a bit about this in my upcoming book on greenwashing, but we see a lot of these stamps of approval on packages. Uh, Rainforest Alliance is a good example. A lot of people will have seen the the tree frog on their teas or their coffee saying it's sustainably sourced, which is great. But of course, companies and PR firms and marketing departments have caught on to that and they've created their own labels. So you'll see a package that just has a label that looks like it comes from a sustainable seal of approval rating system. But in reality, it's just the marketing department created a cool graphic. So these are the sort of things that consumers do need to educate themselves on. But things like that are so egregious and so in your face that they they really are not going to be around too long either because consumers are, are not dumb. <laughs> I'm happy to say consumers yeah. do know when they're being lied to. They do know when something just doesn't smell right. So if you're not going to pass the smell test, consumers are not going to buy your stuff. This may be covered in your book, of course, but what are some of the future trends that you expect to see become more normalized, if you like, in sustainable practices for us everyday folks and I guess businesses who are trying to do their best in the next few years that we're maybe not across yet? We we sort of feel like we're a bit of a sustainable holding pattern as far as I'm concerned. I haven't seen anything new or innovative come out for a few years now, but perhaps you've got your finger on the pulse and can tell us what might be coming our way. It's interesting because we are in a holding pattern and, and sustainability goes through this. We'll, there'll be a lot of work and then we'll just wait and then it'll happen again. And we're in one of those waiting periods now. And if I look at it through the lens of the private sector, the way we we get out of that holding pattern is for a company to take a bit of a risk and to put their their neck on the chopping block by doing something innovative. So we're kind of waiting for that to happen now. But if I look forward, you know, a year or a year and a half ish, I think greenwashing is certainly going to be a big issue, which is why I've written on it. I think, like I said before, it's it's become so pervasive now that consumers do need to educate themselves uh, against what companies are doing. I also think we're going to be moving away from this idea that sustainability has to be done by activists or greenies or people that want us to go live off the grid and give up our phones. I think people understand that that's not exactly how you do better by the earth. So you look at a lot of these antics by groups like Extinction Rebellion or Just Stop Oil. And while they're very good at getting attention, if we're using marketing speak, they're very good at getting impressions. They're not so good at conversion. So right now, we definitely need to be converting more people to the cause. If people don't know that there's something going on with the world and we're sort of we're burning up, 
then I don't know. Well, they haven't looked out their window, have they? Lately? That's it. I don't know what more to tell them. So, so they may be a lost cause. But yeah. you know, we really need to be bringing people into the fold and showing them that there are small ways and things that you can do at home or in your own personal life that will make a big difference. Can you give us a couple of examples? Because you mentioned recycling doesn't work. And I think we all feel a little bit virtuous when we put out our, you know, plastics into the recycling bin and wheel it out on a Wednesday night. What else could we be doing? I don't want anyone to stop recycling. I think it's very (laughs) important that we all continue to recycling. I think the issue happens when we put undue reliance on one particular thing. So I've done my recycling. That means I've done my bit for the earth. Not really. You've done, you've done great. Continue to do it, but look at other ways you can also be contributing because if we all just sit back and only recycle, that's not going to get us very far. And it's the same if we look at, uh, you know, relying on an individual, I don't know, like Jeff Bezos to help us or Bill Gates to help us. Yeah, let, the, do, let the rich sort it out that's for it. us. And, and, and that yeah. doesn't work. They, they might be able to move the needle a bit, but that doesn't absolve us from doing from doing the hard yards either. And I think the challenge sometimes is it is – it feels like it's an economic privilege sometimes, some of these activities. You know, for example, our family put in solar panels end of last year when we renovated, but, you know, that's a pretty borgy thing to be able to afford to do. You've got to come up with your 10 grand. You've got to, you know, yes, it'll pay off. You know, you're doing a great thing, but that's not something everyone perhaps can can do. So I feel like sometimes there's a disenfranchisement of people that, you know, it may be a different socioeconomic group as well. Absolutely. And there's been study after study on this about how essentially it's the developed world causing the problems and pawning it off to the developing world. And I understand that, like you mentioned, I'm I'm speaking from a relative place of privilege. So when when I talk about sustainability from from my angle, it's primarily through a developed world lens. I know that's the lens I have. But I also understand that a lot of people, even in the developed world, are not able to do things like put solar panels up. So I wouldn't be pressuring them to to even consider doing such things. But there are definite things that no matter what, you can certainly be doing. Uh, And just like a business, a lot of times, if you are more sustainable in your daily life, it, it does have economic benefits. So uh, if you if you can do if you cannot don't feel pressure because there are plenty of people in this this army of do-gooders that are picking up the slack so i feel like you're probably often the smartest person in the room but i'm sure you've <laughs> been given some great advice over the years perhaps as you were sort of rising the ranks in your career what's the best advice you were ever given who was it from and why the best advice i've ever received is this idea that you can do anything but you can't do everything. And that has been, that, that was such a revelation when I heard that, because I think particularly as people who are altruists, we want to do it all. We want to go read to the old people, we the elderly, sorry. We want to go, you know, feed, feed the shelter dog and give money to charities. And that's all well and good, but our resources, our time, our sanity, those are all finite resources. So we we can't be doing everything. So this idea that it's important to pick what it is you're most passionate about and really go for it has, has helped me focus my life, certainly my business so much. So again, this idea that you can do anything, but you can't do everything is was so important. And I don't remember who told me that or where I read it, but it's definitely followed me. 
Excellent. If we spoke again in a year's time, what would be the number one goal you would have, have achieved? Obviously, publishing your book, I'm sure, is in there. <laughs> and, and why? What, what's something else, perhaps, that you're hoping to strive for? The book's a big one. It's sort of been all-encompassing at the moment. <laughs> I'm sure. And you're so, de- knee-deep in it. I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of like, I guess, sidelining it, but I, I suppose that's the obvious one. Yeah, absolutely. It was the one that, that immediately came to mind. But in, in other ways, too, I think... I think it's important for me to be remembering to get the message out there, not through writing per se or through books, but but in the interactions I have with with companies. And I would certainly love to to be doing more if we spoke in a year, more on the speaking circuit, because I think being able to get the message out to larger audiences, particularly those that I may not be able to speak to in a boardroom, is really important. So as we talked about a second ago, not necessarily just for the sake of getting impressions, but to be converting people into showing them that, yeah, there's lots of stuff that you can be doing that you may not have even considered. As we wrap up today, what would be a final takeaway message for us on the politics of greenwashing? I want everyone to be like me. I want everyone to be a pragmatic altruist. So I really do sort of preach the word of this. So if you're going to do something, do it well, but do it strategically. Don't don't just go out and and do something without knowing why you're doing it. I think we have enough of that going on, especially when it comes to saving the earth. I want people to really be be more thoughtful with the things they're doing. Educate yourself, and and in turn, that will help your passion, and it will certainly help to build a sustainable future for everybody. John, it's been a pleasure to chat to you today. And if you do want to connect further with John, there will be some details on the show notes, including his LinkedIn and his website. Until next time, take care. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.